What a great delight it is for us to be not only on campus, but for all the people that are joining us online today. We're grateful for them. I want to say thank you uh, to, let me see, I think Lindsay is in the building somewhere. Lindsay, there she is. And, oh yeah, <laughs> right down here. I know you. And uh, Lindsay heads our To The Beat uh, dance studio, which with all the events of uh, COVID-19, obviously came to a screeching halt in the middle of the uh, first part of March. And then they had a spring event planned that they do every year, which is a big event. They, we usually have about 15, 1,800 people that attend that event because we have about 300 students at dance. And so they were not able to do classes. Teachers didn't even get to see their students. But every week they came in here for hours and, and filmed their dance class each week to teach them. And yesterday they did a virtual dance recital that they, her and McKenzie worked on for uh, five or six days, I think 24 hours a day to put it together. And I just want to say thank you to all the people that have worked so hard to keep a ministry of this church going, even during a very difficult time. Great job. It was incredible. We appreciate them. Second thing I want to say before I preach is this. If you're not a part of an unhindered group, you need to get unhindered. I didn't have very much response right there. We have unhindered groups that meet every Wednesday night. It's about one hour long. Uh, sometimes some of them may go longer. But people from all over the city are connected on Zoom calls. And they're actually to encourage each other, to build each other up. I do about a 10-minute video of teaching, just one thought of teaching, and then the discussion takes place around it, and people pray for each other. Listen to me. Unhindered is not something we're going to do just for COVID-19. It's something that's becoming a part of the life of our church. That's going to continue long after the pandemic is over. So if you're not in an unhindered group, you're already behind. We want you to catch up. We want you to get involved. We want you to be a part because that's actually where we get to hands-on minister to people. And come on, let's be honest. How many of you don't know more than 10 people that you attend church with? Don't, 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 we're not judging anybody, but how many of you don't know more than 10 people you attend church to? Come on, hands go up all over the building. This would be a great part and a great time for you to be involved because you get to meet people, you get to build relationships with people, and after all, we are called the family of God. Amen? So how many of you know you don't get to choose your family? <laughs> Y'all are really quiet today. I'm, I can see everybody at home just hitting heart buttons everywhere. So I just want to make sure if you want today, there will be some people, Pastor Amanda, Pastor Cole, we'll make sure there's people that are in, in the uh, North Lobby at guest services to help you know how to become a part of an unhindered group. You can catch up. There's, it's not a curriculum. You can start this week uh, being a part of an unhindered group. And they'll even show you how you say, I don't know how to do all that technology. It's really simple. And they'll show you how to do it. You can do it on your phone. And uh, now if you still got a flip phone, we'll... We'll believe the Lord to prosper you and move you up a little bit further in the, in, in the chain. I have a word today that I really feel is burning in my heart. I've, uh, I've spent most of my week, like many of you, probably asking questions. I've spent time with a lot of meetings. I have responsibility of a network of pastors all over, not America, but all over the world. And I've had numbers and numbers of days where I've been involved in meeting with them. 
because I want to respond to the moment. Who would have ever known that when we set this series of messages, that the Holy Spirit would have so articulated things for us that we would, it's amazing how the Bible speaks to the issues of the day without you trying to force it to. We knew we would be in Acts chapter two uh, for this time and period. And when we got here, the world just sort of took shape so that we could speak to it. God spoke to us about doing a series of messages called Live Pentecost. Because I think even for most people that attend a full gospel church, they look at Pentecost as an event or an occurrence or an experience that happens one time in their life or maybe a couple of times in their life. When in reality, Pentecost is a way of the kingdom. It's how we live. There are things that happened at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that shifted everything to do with how the church was to live. It changed everything. And I want to talk to that, about that today. I want you just to stand with me. We haven't got to do this in a long time. Would you stand with me? Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. We'll begin to read in verse number 5. Acts chapter 2, verse number 5. My theme today is I want to deal with the subject, the resurgence begins. The resurgence begins. It's time for there to be a resurgence of a full gospel, spirit-empowered, spirit-led, spirit-functional church in the earth. Acts chapter 2, verse number 5. If you're there, those of you that are at home, make sure you get your Bibles. Make sure you get your notepads. I'm going to go quickly today. i got a lot to cover. Let me ask you a question, please. We're friends, and I know we've only been back in church together a couple of weeks. But have we been friends long enough that you'll give me a chance to talk about some things that might make us uncomfortable? I don't, I don't want to. I'm not trying and seeking to be offensive today, but I'm going to touch some sacred cows today that I believe it's time for them to be slaughtered. If the church is going to have the impact that it needs to have. Acts chapter two, verse number five, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled saying to one another, look, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontius and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? How many of you have looked around all week long and gone, whatever, what could this mean? What does all this mean? What does this disruption in 2020 mean? From pandemics, to social upheaval, to racial tensions, to political battles, to economic difficulties. What's all this mean? 
And actually, the Bible teaches us this. If you can't understand what's going on in heaven, just look on the earth. If you want to know what's going on in the heavens right now, there is a major war going on in the heavens. And it's going on because principalities and powers seek to control and manipulate, dominate and steal, kill and destroy lives of human beings that were made in the image of God. Whatever could this mean? And others mock saying, these are full of new wine. Holy Spirit, I pray over the next few minutes you'll fill this room with your presence. I pray that you'll give me the capacity to speak and to teach. I pray that you'll clothe me, put me on like a coat today and wear me. Use my voice, my thoughts to articulate the heart of the Father. To that end, I give you myself in Jesus' name. Everybody shout amen. amen. Come on, just high five. Nope, excuse, nope, don't high five somebody. Air high five somebody and tell them the resurgence begins. You can be seated. The word resurgence by definition means this. It means the rising again to life or the coming again to activity, to functionality, or to a place of prominence. When something has a resurgency in your life, it comes back in the forefront of your mind. When something has a resurgency in culture, it begins to live again. When you have a garden and all your plants have been bent over and they look like the, the June sun in Oklahoma, which we went from spring to the middle of July. And you put water on them and it looks like they have a resurgency. They come back to life. They stand up erect. Things that have been beat down. I believe that we're about to experience a supernatural return to life and we're going to experience a supernatural return to function. I believe God is going to awaken the church. There's a clarion call to the church. Don't miss what I'm about to say. If our nation is going to experience the pivot, the reformation that is necessary, it's not going to be happening just in D.C. And it won't happen just in the streets. There's something got to happen in our homes. We have to have a resurgency in our homes where once again, parents take responsibility for training and teaching children. We're gonna to have to have a resurgency in the church where the church quits just preaching feel good sermons and actually brings people to task over whether or not we're true Christ followers and whether or not we live by the kingdom or whether we live by what's culturally beneficial to our own lives. And at the same time, it's not enough to walk around the walls of Jericho till they fall and never go up in the city and change things. So there's going to have to be change at our government levels as well. Somebody ought to help me in the building this morning. There is something that happened in our culture that's been rooted in it since its foundation. And that is that we have been content to be a society that is a part of Christendom but not truly be biblical Christianity. For everybody that's not familiar with that term, the word Christendom appeared in the third century, the fourth century, excuse me, 313 AD. It was when Christianity was turned into a geo-sociological kingdom so it could dominate the earth. When you talk about Christendom, it's the domain of Christianity, or more accurately, 
it is the nations of the world watch this that are influenced by christian thought and christian values without ever having to be christ followers i want to say something boldly today christianity is not a philosophy it's not an ideology it's not you choose christianity and a little bit of buddhism and you choose a little bit of Christianity and a little bit of Hinduism and a little bit of New Age philosophy and you mix it together to come up with your own ideals for what life is supposed to be about. Christianity is not about ideology and it's not about philosophy. It is about conversion and transformation and people becoming under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the founder of Christianity. Constantine and the political world are the founders of Christendom. We today talk about things called the separation of church and state. We talk about that today because in, in the days of Constantine, in Constantinople, which is today Islamabad, I mean, Istanbul, when Constantine ruled, he put the church and state together. He decided that the way he would have the most power and the way we could rule the world the most was allow the church and the state to become one and the same. So therefore, we began to have national religions. We began to have things like the Church of England. We began to have things like the Holy Roman Catholic Church which could dictate and lead policy in government officials all over the earth. May I suggest to you, Jesus did not come to set up an earthly kingdom. He did not come to set up a social construct. He invaded every social and cultural reality of humanity, not in order to become a part of it, but in order to transform it and raise it to a higher place, and that is to the kingdom which he is Lord of. I want to say today in America, Houston, we have a problem because we have accepted a lie that has told us we are a Christian nation when in reality we are a part of Christendom. We have the language of faith without the life of faith. We have the language of faith without the conversion to Jesus being the Lord of our life. Our allegiance is to our political alignments and not to a cross. And therefore, we would rather sing the national anthem than we would sing, I would cling to the old rugged cross. Because at the cross, everything has to die in order to come back to life. What I'm talking about, ladies and gentlemen, is what Paul described when he wrote to Timothy these words. He said, there will come a group of people who have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. You end up with a culture where it becomes advantageous to practice aspects of Christianity. In other words, it's socially acceptable and beneficial for you to dedicate your babies, have them baptized when they're little without ever really making a commitment that you're going to make your home a Christian home. But everybody wants to make sure their kids go to heaven in case something happens to them while they're a child. It's a farce. It's a myth. It is nowhere near what this Bible teaches us as the Christianity that Jesus came to bring. We choose to get married in churches that we've never met the founder of. 
We say we're standing before God to make commitments. And then we live as if God doesn't see anything we do. I ain't got no help in the building, but I'm going to keep, I'm going to preach that camera because I know somebody at home is running around right now. We give money to charitable organizations so we relieve the guilt of our greed. Because in our culture, it's acceptable to have some flavors of Christendom. Ross Dathat, a writer for the New York Times, made this statement. He said, America's problem is not that it has too much religion or too little religion. It's that it's got bad religion. Leading to the slow motion collapse of true biblical Christianity and making room for the rise of pseudo-Christianities that have been formed and fashioned after the mindsets of men. You call it, listen, we call it cultural Christianity. Or you could call it American civil religion. It's anything that serves the purposes of making us a great nation. It keeps Christmas trees on public property. We hear our public officials refer to God without ever having to clarify what God they're talking about. And we feel good because our leader takes an oath with his hand on a Bible that potentially he may have never read. Somebody's got to say some stuff. I realize I am in the middle of conservative mid-America. I realize I'm in a great city and I know God put me here and I'm grateful to be here. And I want you to understand something. I have a political science background. That is my, that's, that's my undergrad degree was hidden in political science. So I am dealing with everything in my own personal life and everything that we've ever been taught. But somebody has got to stand up. Somebody's got to give voice to the prophetic voice of God in this generation if we're ever going to see the kingdom come to pass. Have I got any help in the room anywhere? Much talk in every year is about evangelicals. People say to themselves, am I one? Well, let me tell you what makes you an evangelical. First of all, you believe that there's one God revealed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Second of all, you believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God and it is the standard for living and for truth. In other words, it's not, well, that's old-fashioned. I don't know if I believe that part of it. That was for that day, Bishop. That's not for today. You believe in a cross, not just any cross, but the cross where Jesus died. He died for our sins and became the only sacrifice that is acceptable to God for salvation and redemption to become possible. You believe in conversion and transformation. You believe that every individual has to repent of their sins and be personally converted. That means everybody has to admit I've sinned or I am a sinner. I'm a sinner by birth and I have to have a savior. And lastly, in order to be an evangelical, you have to be actively involved in the mission of what Christianity is all about. 
that you have a deep belief that the gospel needs to be lived out in every neighborhood, in every household, in every city, in every town, and expressed in an outward way so that people could see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, our news media would want to tell you that 60 to 70% of America are evangelicals. I'd like to suggest to you that based on that criteria, about 8% of America may be evangelicals because we got a lot of people talking about a Jesus they ain't following and talking about a Bible they ain't living and dealing with attitudes that are not reflective of the king in which we give our allegiance. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And the church has become a place of seeking after advantage by posing ourselves as being religious people in order to get ahead of other people who seem to be pagans. So we do that three ways. We borrow our faith, we've lost our faith, and we got people with no faith. You say, Bishop, what are you talking about? Let me tell you what it means. There's a group of people in our culture today that have borrowed their faith. They outwardly practice things of morality, but inwardly are full of dead men's bones. They're outwardly moral, but they're inwardly still unbelieving pagans. The church is full of atheists. I ain't got no help. I said the church is full of atheists. You say, well, I'm not an atheist. I'm a Bible-toting, blood-bought, I'm a part of the blood-bought church. No, you're not. If you have somebody that's offended you and you ain't got enough faith to forgive them. No, no, you're not. If you're facing a financial crisis and you don't believe God is strong enough to be the provider of your life, you have borrowed your faith and your language from somebody else. It's time we quit living off of our parents' relationship and our forefathers' relationship because we don't want to be personally ostracized for being bold Christians. We want to treat God like a hotel and not like a home. I am calling somebody back to a place today where you don't borrow somebody else's faith. You actually build your own personal relationship with God. It's not enough. Am I doing okay? Can I keep preaching? It's not enough to have heard about a God you never have encountered and experienced. So what happens if you spend a lot of time borrowing your faith, it won't be long that the outcome will be lost faith. In other words, inward conversion is not present, and then it becomes unrealistic to expect outward devotion. We get offended at people for behaving according to their hearts. I'm going to say that again. The whole nation rises up and gets offended at people for living out who they really are on the inside. Why do we get offended with people who are sinners for sinning? Now it's about, in our world today, We've moved beyond borrowed faith. We've moved to lost faith. And now for us in America, it's not about faith in Christ. It's about spirituality. I've got spirituality. 
Well, so, so does Oprah and Dupac. And so does a whole lot of guys. They all got spirituality. It means absolutely nothing in the kingdom of God. It means nothing before the face of God. Nothing. Well, I'm a very spiritual person. Well, what's that mean? Do you realize that witches are spiritual? In fact, if I take you to nations where witchcraft is prominent, they're much more spiritual than Americans. They're much more sensitive to the spiritual atmosphere than Americans are. In in, in truth, we are scientific, analytical, and we want to put spirituality on it because we realize there's a God somewhere. We don't know who he is, and we've never had a relationship with him, but we realize he's somewhere. So we want you to think that we are also leaning into the spiritual side when the truth of the matter is, is that I'm not so sure that we even know what we're saying. We say we're spiritual. And now the rising group of people, if you take a survey in America and pass out, a, pass out a survey to people and ask particularly 30 and under, how do you identify yourself? It's not borrowed faith. It's not even lost faith. It's no faith. The nuns, in, I'm not talking about the N-U-Ns. I'm talking about the N-O-N-E-S. The nuns are the growing largest group of people in American culture, in the major cities of America. And hold on to your seat. Let me tell you where that's not true. The two places it's not true are the places that are most difficult for white Caucasian Americans to deal with. In young African American men, there is a rise in faith in Christ. In young white men, and women, there is a decline in faith to nuns. In young Hispanic men and women, there is an incredible rise in faith in Christ. Can I say to you, I don't know, I say this stuff in pastor's meetings, I don't say this to our church, but do you realize in America, every major denomination, including the Pentecostals, would have been in decline over the last 10 years had they not counted the Hispanic churches and the black churches that are a part of them because the Hispanic churches and the black churches are growing and the white churches are in decline because people have lost their faith. We better not be upset with immigrants. They are keeping us on track and keeping us calling on the name of the Lord. Somebody in the building needs to know it's time for a resurgence. It's time for the people of God to come back to life and live out their faith. People say things like this. I'm spiritual. I'm not religious. What does that mean? You worship at the altar of your own spirituality. Doesn't necessarily mean you worship at the altar of being God's altar. Well, Bishop, my garden is my church. When I'm with my petunias and I'm with my lilac tree, I'm with God. Well, I just ride out and look at the mountains. You know what? I, Kathy's got a beautiful flower garden. She loves them. 
And I love them because she loves them. Right? I buy them because she loves them. I love her. But you know what? When I'm out there, I don't know that I'm having a godly experience. Especially if I'm having to carry soil and mulch. And, and it's 100 degrees. I don't know if I'm having a real godly experience. I, actually, I think sometimes it reminds me of what hell could be like. And I'm going, I don't want to go there. So, I, Lord, thank you. Thank you for taking me to the flower garden today because you reminded me why I don't want to go to hell. Thank you for that. You know, this isn't in the Bible, but I think in hell they're going to make people paint and they're going to make people wear double-knit pants. I think those are the two things that's going to happen in hell. That's going to happen for sure. But if, you're, if your church is a tulip, what you going to do when all hell breaks loose in your house? Who's the company of people you'll run to and say, I can't pray for myself. Can you pray for, I've never heard, I've been in a lot of gardens, I've never heard a tulip pray for me. It's never laid hands on me when cancer entered my body. It's never lifted my arms up when they were hung down. It never stood me up erect and said, boy, you are somebody and you can do what God called you to do. That took another human being. I had to recognize that I couldn't separate myself from the gospel, nor from the people of God, nor from the church of God. Today, what we have is a lot of good works. We just don't have very much good news. There's a lot of talk about relationships, very little talk about repentance. There's a lot of talk about institutional sin, but nobody wants to talk about personal sin. Everybody wants to get in the streets and repent for the sins of America. Nobody wants to get next to their couch and repent for their bad attitude and their jokes and the things they've said about people. I ain't got no help, but so help me if there's breath in me, I'm going to preach today. People say, don't, t- don't talk to me about the gospel, just show it to me. And I want to say to you, there's only one problem. Because the gospel is an announcement. If I can't talk to you about it, I can't tell you about it. I can't even show it to you. Because the gospel is not a philosophy. The gospel is an announcement. God sent his son to become a man, to take our place, to die for our sins. He was buried and he rose on the third day. He was seen by many people. He's ascended to heaven. And now he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for you and I. It's not something that we have to do. It's something that's already been done. It's an announcement that God did what I could not do so I could become what I could never have been on my own. It's possible in our culture to have morality, spirituality, and charity and not have Jesus. In fact, there are some pagans I'd rather do business with than some Christians. So now that got me to my text. It won't take me long to preach it. So what's happening in Acts chapter 2. It's what I'm crying for today. Because in the days of Acts, actually in the days of Jesus coming, cultural religion 
Judaism had left people empty, disillusioned, still with a veil between them and God. It kept them not only veiled from God, it kept them veiled from other people who weren't like them. And Acts chapter 2 is the awakening of a new reality. Something old was ending, something new was about to be birthed. Hold on to your seats. It was the final days of the last days. That went to the back wall. Somebody said, Bishop, but we living in the last days. They, they've been, according to what Peter said here, they've been gone for a long time. Because he stood up in Acts chapter 2 and said, this is that. This ain't like that. This is that. Which the prophet Joel spoke of. That in the last days. If Acts chapter 2 is real, the last days have come and gone. Hmm. I realize there's some folks that's made a million dollars in the last three weeks preaching sermons about the coming of the Lord. Got everybody looking to the eastern sky, wondering what's going to happen. Listen to me. There's a mass difference in the Bible between last things and last days. And most of the time, we take our references to last days to mean last things. When Peter said, this is that, and in the last days, I'll pour out my spirit. Here's what he was saying. In the last days of the old covenant, there's going to come a moment when things transition and everything shifts. We're going to move from an old covenant relationship of law and order and making sure you cross your T's and dot your I's. And if you don't perform right, you don't get in. And it's going to be very segregated. It's going to be very exclusive. It's going to be Judaized only. But in those last days, I'm about to make a shift. I'm going to move from what you can do for God to what God is going to do for you. I'm going to move away from being isolated to one group of people to where I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. And I'm going to break every barrier you ever built to separate me from my people, whether it be gender-wise, whether it be generational, whether it be religious, ethnicistic, ethnic, it does not matter. I'm going to break down the walls that you have built up. For he, Colossians chapter 2, he has become our peace who has broken down every wall of hostility that was built up between us. Am I doing all right? Can I keep going? So he said, the way you'll know the last days has begun is they will begin to speak with a new tongue. Interesting, Acts 2 forces, they began. Somebody say, they began. They began. The word began there carries two implications. It means they began as if it was something new that had never been done before. This was Pentecostal outpouring. It was the first time that experience had ever been had by anybody on the earth. So it began. How many of you know there was a days, there was not a next Netflix and then there was a day it began. Come on, huh? There was a day there were not cell phones, and then there was a day they 
began. How many of you know there was a day there wasn't automobiles, but then there was a day they began? So the word began there means the first of something that started that had not existed before. They began to speak with other tongues. But it also carries this implication. Not only was it the first time, but it was the start of something that was to be afterwards repeated and continued indefinitely. Hmm? It began so it could keep continuing. In other words, for all the people that believe, well, it was just for those guys that day in order to prove something in Jerusalem, that's not what that word even means. It means it began with them, but it was going to be continued out through generations and generations. Why? Because Pentecost was meant to be lived, not just experienced as a one-time event. It was supposed to be continued. What started in them that day, this shift, I ain't got no help. Let me try it over here. This shift that took us from this old into a new, this last day's movement that started on the day of Pentecost into a new covenant relationship. He said it was to be continued out for generations as long as there's people on the earth. So here's what happens when it continued. Write this, write this down quickly. Those of you at home, make sure you take these notes. Write this down. First of all, he said, and there were in Jerusalem devout Jews from every nation on the earth. Everybody shout, every nation. Come on, say it one more time. Every nation. The word nation there is the word ethnos. Ethnos. Literally what he was saying is there were people in the city that day from every ethnic identity from all over the known world. So what does that mean? That means at Pentecost, the gospel went public. That's why the Jews were so frustrated. Because now it was no longer theirs only. God went public. He went beyond the closed room of an inner circle of people praying. Because the tendency of anybody that has a experience or what they believe is something that gives them an advantage, the tendency is to want to keep it private. And God said, this can't stay private. I can't keep this in the upper room. I can't even keep it in Jerusalem. I got to make sure that this thing, do you realize where they were talking from? He said there was Parthenians there. There were people there that was from Mesopotamia. There were people there that was from Crete. Arabs were there from, from Arabia. There, there were people, am I doing okay? There were people there from Libya, from Rome. Some of the places he names that you say, I've never heard of that. Kappa what? And all these places that were in there that were listed, some of them are in Turkey today. Some of them are on the border between Europe and Asia. So in other words, it was in the Eastern world and the Western world. People were there from all over. Because, you know, Turkey, Istanbul uh, uh, separates Asia from Europe. The river separates Asia from Europe. You can stand in one city and be in two continents. When you realize that, there were people that were from the known world. That was the known world of that day. They were all there. And Jesus pouring out his spirit on all flesh. That means dark-skinned flesh because some of them were from Libya and some were further south. That means European flesh. That means, that means people that don't look like me even. He said, I'm not going to let this thing be 
private, I'm taking it public. If you're going to live Pentecost, you can't live this thing privately. You got to take it public. It's got to be for all flesh. That means the kingdom was meant to be diverse. It's from every nation. How many of you know the original commandment given to man? Genesis chapter 1. We lean into the commandment. We lean into the commandment about we're going to have dominion. Let me tell you what comes before dominion. Fruitful, multiply. What's the next one? Fill the earth. Fill the earth. God's intention was that his representative called man who's the only thing that he made that bore his image your trees bear his creative capacity but your trees don't bear his image I ain't got no help the mountains are beautiful but they don't bear his image the only thing he said that bore his image was mankind And he said, the only way I'm going to be represented in the entire earth is for me to put man everywhere. That's why he's going to have to be in China and Afghanistan and have to be in Kenya and Uganda and South Africa and America and Canada and down in Colombia and and Peru. I'm going to have to put man everywhere because in order for my image to be in the earth, the only way my image can get there is for people to get there. By the time we reach Genesis 6, man's become so wicked that God's upset. He decides, I'm done with this creation. He wants to destroy it. And then he thinks and says, I can't do that. So he creates a family, eight people, eight, the number for new beginnings. Eight people go into an ark, an ark of safety. And God wipes out the earth with a flood. I just want to leave this for you to pawn on and think about. We'll come back to it later. Who was taken and who was left? Because that's the big deal about us truth of the matter is Noah was left and everything else was taken away when you get in the ark of safety you don't have to worry about what goes on in the earth you can be Israel living in a land of Egypt where you're slaves but if you're in Goshen and God decides to curse Egypt it won't touch Goshen if you know and have a covenant with God it can flood the whole earth but it won't touch inside of your ark the key is what ark are you in because if you're in Jesus everything out here can't affect where I'm at they come out of an ark And Noah once again forgets the original command, fill the earth. And Noah wants to be in one place. And all of a sudden, people begin to get together. Partnerships begin to be built. And by the time we get to Genesis 11, they are building a tower called Babel. And man, everybody's going, this is awesome. Look how innovative we are. Look what kind of ingenuities we have. Look how brilliant we are. Look at the minds we have. We can build a tower that will reach into heaven. And everybody could communicate with everybody. And people from whatever parts of the world they were in could come to Babel, which means the place of confusion. They could come to Babel and say, we can do this by ourselves. We don't need God. We'll build a tower that will reach into the heavens. 
And God goes, you guys don't get it. I'm not going to let you build anything. It's not about getting to God. God wasn't threatened. It was about the fact they all wanted to live around one particular place. And he says to them, I'm not going to let you live here and not fill the earth with my glory. So he confused their languages and they couldn't even talk to each other. And because of that, they scattered all over the earth. And for 4,000 years, people couldn't talk to each other until all of a sudden, one day in Jerusalem, they were all gathered together for a feast called Pentecost. And a language came from heaven called the language of the Holy Spirit. And then people from all over the world could once again talk together. Every nation. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah prophesied about the coming kingdom. The kingdom where Jesus would reign. The kingdom where Jesus would sit as judge over the nations. He would adjust everything that needed to be adjusted. Here's what Isaiah said. uh, Isaiah 2, 3 and 4. He says, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let us go to Zion. For there I will sit and judge between the nations. And watch this. Watch this. This is his kingdom. And in in that place where I reign, men will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. In other words, in my kingdom... Everything that man uses as a weapon against another man will be turned into an instrument to benefit him, not hurt him. In my kingdom, my people don't take up swords against people. They try to empower people to make them more fruitful. I ain't got no help. But every, listen, every time we demonize somebody, we cut off the opportunity to represent his kingdom or to be influential in their life for the kingdom. We tend to demonize our enemies. If they don't look like me, act like me, talk like me, do like me, then they are the enemies of me personally. So therefore, I have to find a way to demonize them. They they don't understand me, so we demonize them. They're not like the neighborhood I live in, so we demonize them. Listen to me. Jesus was not merely a friend to sinners. I hear people say this, well, Jesus was a friend to sinners. No, that ain't what the Bible says. To be a friend to somebody means you respect them or you're respectable and maybe you treat them with some kind of kindness. That's to be a friend to somebody. But he said he was the friend of sinners. That means he wasn't just kind to them. They loved him even though they had not yet chosen to follow him. That means they considered him their friend. I wonder what would happen in the church world if every believing, full gospel, Pentecostal person began to start saying, I just don't want to be friendly towards sinners. I want to come to a point where sinners believe I am their friend because they can trust me, talk to me. They can bring me their problems without having to listen to a sermon and realize that I'm not going to try to fix them. Sometimes I'll just show them compassion and let them weep on my shoulder 
and say, I don't know what you experienced, but I love you and I hear you and I feel for you. In America right now, we don't need a new law. We need some empathy. We need some compassion. We need people who say, I will listen. And when we listen, then we can bring healing. Every nation. Next verse is this. I'm almost done. And when they heard them speak, they became confused. The literal meaning is this. The day of Pentecost caused people to get stirred up. They were in an uproar. Do you know what? Revelation can often be disruptive. Selah. When has God ever said something to you that upsets your belief system? There are people in this room. There are people watching me online. There was a time in your life you went to a church that didn't even believe in speaking in tongues. Hmm? But you received a revelation that it was actually for you today. But how many of you know the first time you got that revelation, everything you'd been taught rose up inside of you? Hmm? Because even Jesus said there's something more powerful than the Word of God. I'm quoting Jesus. He said there's something more powerful than the Word of God. And he said it to a group of religious leaders. He said this. He said you nullify the Word of God because you teach your traditions as if it was this. In other words, your traditions shut down even my word in your life. Things that you learn from your auntie, your grandma, your daddy that may not have been in the Bible. It may have fit your home environment, but it didn't fit the Bible. Thank you, Jesus. So we've been programmed to believe that if God wants to do anything in our lives, it'll be palatable, it'll be easily understood, and it'll be not confusing. Not true. The day of Pentecost was chaotic. Listen, I want to take a, I want to, I want to make something very clear. I don't believe in violence. I don't believe in looting. I don't believe in tearing up other people's property in order to prove how much I'm angry. That's not, that's not biblical. It's not godly. But if you don't think the disruption in our culture today is a sign that God's trying to talk to us, if you think this is just some people somewhere that got aggravated, you have missed the whole story. Because actually the disruption and the confusion and the chaos, I believe, is because we're experiencing another outpouring that God is trying to say, I want to awaken my church. I want them to stand up. I want them to quit being cultural Christianity. I want them to once again start walking under the name of Jesus, interceding, praying, taking their place, unmasking principalities and powers, knowing how to stand in a place of prayer without praying little three-minute prayers. 
prayers. Jesus, bless me. Bless my family. Bless my kids. But they really go to war saying in Oklahoma City, this spirit is coming down. This principality is coming down. It won't be here. It is going to be chaotic. But the results of it is it's going to be powerful. Listen to me, loved ones, as I close in a minute. God will offend your mind to reveal your heart. He will offend your mind to reveal your heart. what happened to Isaiah in Isaiah 6. He said, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. He said, man, I'd love to say, oh, that's be glorious to be in a worship service. Actually leading and we see the doorpost shaking. Glory of God coming. Filling the auditorium. Angels singing, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah saw all that. And when he saw it, He all of a sudden went, God has just revealed my heart with his glory. Because here's what Isaiah said when he saw it. And when I saw God in all of his fullness, I recognized I'm a man of unclean lips. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying my lips are the expression of what's in my heart. So what I found out is I've been a prophet for 25 years, but I got an unclean heart. I ain't got no help. Let me try that over here. I've been a prophet for 25 years, but I got an unclean heart because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So when Isaiah said, I got unclean lips, it was a sign he had an unclean heart because he was saying there are even people that I've been sent to. I don't even like them. You say, that's not in the Bible, is it? Well, go read Ezekiel. Go read Jeremiah. All of them said, I don't even like the people you sent me to. I don't even want to go talk to them. I hope you do kill them. And God said to Ezekiel, before you prophesy their doom, you go sit where they sit for seven days. Shut your mouth. Don't say anything because I'm going to offend your mind to reveal your heart. Go sit down, Ezekiel. Go sit down in the neighborhood that you're criticizing. Go sit down in the homes you're making fun of. Go sit down in the schools that you think aren't like they are. Go sit down in them for seven days. Put your kids in them. And then after you sit there for seven days, I will so change your heart that when you stand up to speak out of your mouth will come a prophetic word that says even dry bones can live again because there's a river that's going to flow from the throne of God that brings healing to all the nations is anybody helping me in the building you want to know something when he got cleansed of his unclean lips it was not pleasant because the Bible says he took a coal off the altar and touched my lips have you ever been doing a barbecue with coal huh barbecue you know what I'm talking about you get a bag of charcoal 
go, go today. I, just, no, don't do it. Don't do it. No, 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 no. Somebody's going to take that as the word of the Lord. Don't do it. But just imagine it. Go get your barbecue grill. Put your bag of charcoal in there. Light it up. Get the fire going really hot. Get the charcoals white hot. And then lift them up off there and put them on your lips. Because see, when God confronts me, sometimes it's uncomfortable. It's confusing. It can be even chaotic. God, stir your church. Move us from having a form of godliness to having the power of God. And the last thing, I'm done. Come on, team, just come out here. The Bible says they were amazed and perplexed, saying, whatever could this mean? So just start playing I want to ask you a question today. I want to ask you a question today. A resurgency is coming. It's coming. There is a river of God going to flow in the earth. In fact, America is the one that probably ought to most desperately, the Western world ought to most desperately cry out for it. Because we're the ones who have wanted to be in social and political power more than have spiritual power. If we had a mighty army and a good economy, we didn't even care if we had weak churches. Because after all, our tradition teaches us to go to church on Sunday, whether we saved or not. But I want to ask you a question. I want to ask every person at the gate today. Have you quit asking questions? Have you lost your sense of curiosity? Have you stopped asking in your prayer time, God, what's this mean? you trying to say to me what should I be seeing here that I'm not seeing I'm afraid we are no longer inquisitive but having trained leaders for 35 years here's what I know people who ask questions grow people that don't ask questions usually aren't hungry. For all of you that hire people, I'll just give you a secret. If you ever interview somebody, listen to me. You don't want people to be a part of your company for the answers they give you. You want to hire them for the questions they ask. That's why when, we, when I interview people, I quit asking them, do you believe in this, you believe in that, you believe in this. I wouldn't interview them if I didn't think they'd fit our company DNA. But I sit in a room and I listen to find out what questions they ask because their questions reveal where their heart is. If their first question to me is, how much money am I going to make? Then I know what they're after is a job and money and they don't care whether I succeed or anything else succeeds. They're not even after growing their talent or their skill.
But if their first question to me is, what opportunities will be presented to me for me to continue to grow? It reveals something about their heart. This crowd in Acts 2, in Jerusalem, you know what some people did? Some people said, oh, that's just a bunch of drunks. I ain't paying attention to that. I got my, I got my religion. I got the temple. I got the synagogue. I got three feasts a year. I got Passover. I got, I, ah, that's a bunch of drunks. I don't need that. But there's some people who said, this means something. I don't know what it is, but it means something. What does it mean? What they found out is here's what it means. You've been forgiven. The old religious system of works is over. Grace is being poured out through the love of God. Here's what it means. I've been empowered. The same power that was in Jesus is now in me. I can live out what I was created to be. I'll tell you what else it means to me. It means to me that the kingdom I'm a part of will not be a kingdom that's divided or full of prejudice because it's going to be on all flesh. You know what? For the last 40 years, the church world has been, I'll illustrate it this way. It's been like a rocket ship sitting on a launching pad, fully fueled, astronauts trained. But the problem is the rocket's been upside down. We've been aiming in the wrong direction. And we wonder why we can't ever get launched. Because we have spent 40 years aiming the light at the light. We salt the salt. We figure out how, how successful our church is by how many people sit on these seats. When in reality, Pentecost came so we could aim the light at the darkness. Do you know the one thing that Paul did that so offended the traditional church world of his day is Paul and his ministry team went and lived among Gentiles. He went to Thessalonica. He went to Corinth and lived there. To any true Jewish person, you didn't even go into a Gentile's house, much less live there. And the book of Thessalonians tells us this, that he had such a relationship with those people that his religion had taught him were evil and wicked and sick and undone. He had such a relationship with them that the book of Thessalonians says this. He said, I was a nursing mother to them. Read it. I became the very nourishment that allowed them to survive. And his, watch this, his relationship with them was not characterized by just love. He cared deeply for their future. He wasn't there to transfer information. 
The only time I want to see you is to tell you how much I know about the Bible. It's pitiful. Because Jesus didn't say, they'll know you're my disciples by how many Bible verses you can quote. He said, they'll know you're my disciples by how deeply you love people. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't seek to establish a new synagogue or a new way of worship. He didn't try to be seeker-driven. He didn't try to create an environment where his continually sin-loving friends could come and feel comfortable. He wasn't trying to be offensive. So rather than try to invite them into the synagogue, he went to where they were. He cared about their pain. Could it be, could it be that the reason that Native Americans, which we live in a state that is predominantly known for, could it be they're the most unreached people group in America? Because we've wanted them to come to our churches, but we've never been willing to go to their places to sit where they sit. You say, but that's hard. It's hard for me to be around people that are not like me. I like collard greens and these people eat salads. I know it's not comfortable. And I know sometimes it's messy. But Peter stood up that day and said, You want to know what this means? It means that this gospel is going to be set down in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation. Stand with me. Just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to worship God with your giving. So I'm going to ask you to stay with me. Those of you online, stay with me. But right now, I'm going to invite you to do what I'm going to do. And that is to say, Holy Spirit, what you began was meant to be continued. And I pray that there will be a resurgence. There will be a coming alive again. There will be a functionality again. With the power of your spirit. Not just on Sunday morning, but when I'm at work when I'm in my neighborhood I'll let you break down all the barriers and yes it may be chaotic and yes it may be uncomfortable and yes it may be messy and yes we may not get it right further we go in Acts you find out they didn't get it right all the time and traditions die hard this same Peter that day who preached to everybody ended up being sent to Cornelius' house who was a Gentile And he said to God, I'll never go. His traditions were so strong, he told God no. If we'd put it in modern vernacular, Peter said this, it'll be a cold day in hell before I go to that man's house. And God had to say to him, Peter, what I call clean, don't you ever call unclean. 
see how poor I want. I don't, I don't care. I met a lot of people that spoke in tongues and still live prejudiced. I met a lot of people prayed in tongues and still didn't care whether their friends or neighbors got the education they needed. What I'm asking is let's live this Pentecost. Let's don't join ourselves to a, an empire that just has Christian values but doesn't have the Christ who invented them. Let's let Jesus be Lord of our life. Come on, would you lift your hands, your voices all over the building? We're going to sing in just a moment. For 30 seconds, I just want you to pray. Come on, I want you to pray out loud. I want you to say, Holy Spirit, will you come like you did on the day of Pentecost? Would you feel me today? I realize I've gone long today. I don't mean to, but I had to finish what was in my heart today. Come on. God, I want the gate church to be a, a church that reflects Pentecost. I want us to know how to take our place. I want us to know how to stand in the power of your spirit. Come on. God, I thank you that you're restoring by the Spirit the ability for us to speak the language of everybody you call us to. We'll speak the wonderful works of God. Come on, church. I need you just to press. Come on. God, we take our place. We're receivers today. Like in the upper room, we're receivers. Pour out your spirit, Lord. Pour it out in me, O oh God. Pour it out in me, O oh God. Keep pouring, keep pouring, keep pouring. Keep being filled. Keep being filled. Because this is a move. Mountains are still being moved. And strongholds are still being loose. Yes. God, we believe. Yes, we can see it. The wonders are still what you do. Bodies are still being raised. Giants are still being slain. Yes! And God, we believe. Yes, we can see it. The wonders are still what you do. We are
my city you're not going to control my nation Jesus is Lord I declare his lordship I declare his power I declare his grace his anointing you may not have anything but five smooth stones and a little slingshot but with God it's enough you may feel like I am a little insignificant nothing in the face of this battle. But I'm telling you, David, pick up your stones. Run at your giants. And don't run at him with your mouth closed. Run at him with your mouth open. And say, you come to me with a sword and a spear. But I come to you in the name of the Most High God. Pentecost is happening. It's happening. I'm getting ready to open these altars in just a minute. Pastor Amanda's coming to receive and let everybody know how to give. Listen, I believe there are people going to linger here at this altar. I want to sing that again. I just believe we need a fresh outpouring. 
And I realized, listen, I knew this, and I'm not going to push over overtime. I'm not going to push overtime. Today's longer than we intended, way longer. I didn't know where in the middle to cut this sermon, bring it back next week. I'm just being honest with you. But I recognize we've been through 10 weeks of people doing church on their couch, in their pajamas maybe, for an hour and five minutes. But we're at a moment in our nation where we're going to have to say, i got to get myself out of my spirit of, of lethargy, slumber. i got to wake. My, i got to wake. i got to wake myself. Because Jesus said this, while they slept, an enemy stuck in and sowed tares among the wheat. We're not going to sleep. We're going to awaken ourselves. In Je- Are we in agreement? In Jesus' name. So for all of you that prepare to give today, Pastor Amanda, come on. All of you that prepare today, she's going to give you instructions. We're going to bless you. And for those of you that want to leave, please know you're free to. You are not being judged in any way. But if you're in the building today and your relationship with Jesus is on borrowed faith, or your relationship with Jesus is that maybe you lost your faith, or maybe you are here and you have none whatsoever, and you say, I want to begin a relationship with Jesus. As soon as we receive our offering, our altars are going to be open for prayer. People are going to come that may be suffering physical ailments, have marriages that need to be healed, looking for a job. We want to agree with you and pray with you. We're going to, we're going to obey social distancing rules. We'll only touch you as you desire to be touched. But we will agree that God's power will touch your life. So when she finishes receiving and releases the congregation, I want you to know these altars are open. Prayer teams, when she receives the offering, would you then please move in place? I want you to know I love you. I hope you join me Wednesday night for an unhindered group. I get to talk to you again. And next Sunday is going to be a powerful day. Because next Sunday we're going to talk about our sons and daughters. Something about this that's powerful. Amanda? What an incredible message today, Bishop. Thank you so much. Yeah, give it up, give it up. Don't forget this week is Bishop's birthday. Well, would you just get your tithe and offerings together? There's some unique ways we're doing things right now. And one of them is, is that as you're giving by envelope, we prefer that you would just go ahead and drop it with an usher or a host at the end of our service towards our back doors. We're not bringing our offerings to the front right now. We are bringing them uh, as we leave. Also, if you want to give by text, you can give by uh, uh, envelope, whichever way is best for you. Would you just lift your offerings before the Lord, no matter how you gave, even if you got your phone today, if you're giving online, just whatever way it is that represents it for you and your family, we're just going to bless you today. We just speak the favor of God upon you today. We just thank you that as you bring your offering before the Lord, that God is opening up his windows of heaven over your family. I thank you today that he is increasing your ability to do wise things on his behalf. Thank you today that he is giving you ideas and creative thoughts. Thank you that he's bringing favor on the job. Thank you he's bringing jobs and better jobs. Thank you for increases, checks in the mail, things that are happening that are unusual, that cannot even be anticipated or coming forth as a result of this seed. Now, Lord, let it 
it be planted in fertile soil and let it harvest the hundredfold in which you have guaranteed to us. And we give it because we're in love with you. We put you first in all we do. In Jesus' mighty name, amen and amen. We bless you. We speak the grace of God over you this week. We're looking forward to connecting with you again at one of our live stream services or our unhindered groups. See you next week. Have a great day.